Good morning, everyone. Like Luke said, my name is Jacob, um, and I got the pleasure of reading the Bible today. So, um, we are reading Mark 12, verses 18 to 34. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since there are seven since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom, kingdom of God. And from, then, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's nice to see you all in good voice this morning, talking to each other and continue that over morning tea. It's been a long time since I've been called Mr Lockery. (laughs) Please just call me Peter afterwards. Well, keep your Bibles if you've got them open there at Mark chapter 12 and the passage that was read. Today we come to the last um, in our series of passages on uh, Mark's Gospel And we conclude with the passage in chapter 12 because we've already looked at the later chapters, of course, um, in Mark uh, over the Easter weekend concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want to begin with a question by asking, has anyone had the pleasure, or otherwise, of listening to or watching Question Time in Parliament? Anybody ever done that? I've only done it a few times. Um, and um, if you have, you will know that it's not the greatest advertisement for the democracy of our country or its workings. And um, many of the questions that are asked um, by the opposition seem more designed to to cause maximum embarrassment to the government um, rather than uh, seek genuine answers to the questions. Occasionally, however... um, you get uh, one that does seem like a genuine question and is often given a reasonable answer. There's always a lot of noise and crowd participation, if I may call it that. Well, 
it's that sort of environment that we find ourselves in uh, today when we're looking at chapter 12 of Mark. Jesus and his disciples are walking in the temple courts. There's lots of people would have been there, especially since if you read back in chapter 11 a day earlier, Jesus had just cleared the temple of um, of all the commercial business that was being uh, carried on there with the words of chapter 11, verse 17. Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So, chapter 12, in chapter 12, um, if you like, we come to this same sort of environment that Jesus has and what they seek to do is that the Sadducees come along and they seek to ask him a question that's actually going to trick him up. We get one question this way and then the second question we'll look at today is, um, is one that seems a bit more, if you like, genuine from the second of the two. And although the motives, if you like, of the questioners may be mixed here, Jesus' replies provide us with a lot of important information about uh, what I've called today simply uh, important matters um, about life now and beyond. This is the only time that um, uh, the Sadducees uh, are mentioned in God's in in Mark's gospel. We don't have a lot of, of information about them. We have no documents, for instance, no historical documents that were ever um, made by them. We mainly have information from other people that talked about them. They came from a priestly class of Jewish leaders. A number of them became high priests in the Jewish order in that day, and they were involved, therefore, of course, in all the sacrificial aspects of temple worship. Hence, it really is no surprise um, to find um, them here uh, in the temple with wanting to ask Jesus a particular question uh, that they came. The big difference theologically, if you like, from the Sadducees and the much larger group, the Pharisees, um, is noted in verse 18 where it says they believed there was no resurrection, um, whereas the Pharisees had a strong belief in resurrection. And the main reason for this difference was what each group accepted as scripture. The Sadducees only accepted what was known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, whereas the the Pharisees accepted, sorry, the Sadducees only accepted that, the Pharisees accepted basically the whole Old Testament um, as scripture and authority. So the Sadducees saw that there was no reference to the resurrection in the first five books and therefore they didn't believe in it. They thought that, that uh, once you're dead, you're dead. There was nothing. The soul dies with the body. So they found the idea of resurrection really something quite absurd. And to show how absurd it was and to clearly embarrass Jesus, who by this time, of course, had already referred to his own resurrection to come, they came with a question um, about human destiny or to put it another way a question about life after death and so in verse 19 we read teacher they said Moses wrote for us if a man's brother dies and leaves uh, a wife but no children the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother 
The Sadducees referred to what was known as the law of levirate marriage. Levirate comes from the Latin word levir, which means brother-in-law. It was a law specified in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, which reads, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must marry outside the family, not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfil the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Bit weird to us, I know. The reason it seems um, behind this law was one of sort of agricultural inheritance. All Jewish families were were allocated um, a certain amount of land uh, in Israel to work and support them and to keep the land in the family line, a brother-in-law of a childless widow must marry her so as to provide a son and keep the land within the family line. So the Sadducees sought to use this law to show the absurdity of the resurrection. Hence, in verses 20 to 23, we read, Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. And then the third, in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her. You can see them already sniggering in the background here. But rather than be on the defensive, Jesus goes on the attack. He accuses the Sadducees of grave error, both in understanding the scriptures and the power of God. First of all, he says even the scriptures, the Sadducees accepted just the first five books as authoritative, the Torah, bear clear witness to the certainty of resurrection life. Jesus refers to an episode, well-known episode, in Exodus 3 where God appeared to Moses through a burning bush. And in verse 26 he says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then comes the punchline in verse 27. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. In other words, Jesus is saying that these words of Moses effectively state that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are not dead and gone, but alive with God. And this is not just because the present tense is used. Say, I am, not I was. He is, not he was. Because one could easily understand the present tense to refer to um, God's present reality, not the ongoing life of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm sure this is the way the Sadducees actually read the verse, something like, I am the God who spoke to, who spoke in the past to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I must admit, without Jesus' words here, that's the way I probably would have read it as well in the Old Testament. But no, the declaration here in this verse, in fact, is a covenant declaration. 
Resurrection life is certain because of who God is and the fulfilment of his promises to those to whom he gave them. The certainty of the resurrection life rests on the fact that God's covenant with his people, with any one of his people, is eternal. What good would it be to say to Moses, I am the God of dead corpses? It would render the promises of God as only relevant to their earthly lives. That is Abraham's, Isaac's and Jacob's earthly lives and make them finite and unfulfilled. But God pledges himself to the dead precisely because he has the power to raise them to life. And Jesus uh, testified several times to the fact that in one way or another, the fact that Abraham was alive. His own testimony uh, to Abraham is clearest in John chapter 8, verse 56, where he's speaking to the Jews and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw Jesus' day and was glad. Better go back. So God's covenant power to those he calls to faith guarantee the resurrection life is not just possible but absolutely certain. And that is true just as much, friends, brothers and sisters, uh, for us as it, as it was and is for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The nature of God himself makes this a wonderful truth for you and me. Now, having said that, however, Jesus is still really not directly answered yet the question of the Sadducees, of the woman who'd been married seven times. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And that leads to the second aspect of resurrection life and the second mistake the Sadducees made. That is, assuming resurrection life was some sort of souped-up version, spruced-up version of the life we currently experience, a sort of, if you like, earthly utopia. But Jesus makes clear that's not the case. What we and the Sadducees need to understand is the entirely new dimension of resurrection life. See, in verse 25, Jesus says, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. In other words, the woman the Sadducees refer to in the resurrection will be no one's wife because there won't be any marriage in heaven. Men will not marry Women will not be given in marriage. Resurrection life will not be, as we sometimes imagine, a reunion of family and friends without all the problems that hamper our happiness in this life. Now, I think the scriptures indicate elsewhere that we'll still know those that we have lost in one way or another and they us. But life for all God's people then will be on a completely new dimension. 
And Jesus does not give us any details here apart from the reference he says to that people will be like the angels. Now, notice he doesn't say people will be angels, but he says people will be like the angels. We'll still all be human. That's clear from the rest of scripture as Jesus himself will remain divine and human for eternity. But now, however, God's people are related to him through his spirit. He is invisible to them. The angels, on the other hand, are continually present before God around his throne. So when Jesus says we'll be like the angels, I think he means we will share like angels an eternal, visible communion with God. No further details are given or really can be given because we do not have any frame of reference, friends, to understand what that will mean. After all, this current existence we have is predicated and lived in the context of growth and decay, which is due to human sin and rebellion. Have you ever tried to imagine a world without decay? A world without growth? Death, decay, just about everything decays in our world, doesn't it? It's just about impossible. We have no idea what that means. But the power of God is such that God will bring it about. The important point when it comes to life after death is to know that the relationship we have with God is in no way thwarted by death. Death is rather the gateway through which God's power brings us into a new eternal dimension of we live face to face now, visible, with God forever. As long as we live in faith and trust in God now, the future is certain. And that really brings us to the second question in our passage put to Jesus. One that this time I think seems a little more genuine in nature. It was a question about life in the here and now. One of the scribes, they are teachers of the law, has noticed how Jesus gave a good answer, which really probably means he saw how Jesus put the Sadducees in their place. They were badly mistaken. And so he asked Jesus in verse 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important? which we had a wonderful demonstration of that this morning, the kids' talk, I thought. (laughs) He may be an enlightened Sadducee, but it's it's more likely that the scribe belonged to the Pharisees. And um, what we may not realise from this question that he asked is that this was part of an ongoing debate in Jesus' time. The Pharisees had many laws. I think there was about 613 of them, many more than were actually a part of the Old Testament. And debates around higher and lower laws, more or less important laws, were part of the constant discussion. So the question itself um, here is not about what laws need to be obeyed and what laws can we ditch. It's a question about what was the fundamental principle upon which all the law depends. 
And Jesus' answer is fairly straightforward. Life here and now in relationship to God has to do with the primacy of understanding the primacy of love. He begins in verses 29 and 30 with a quote from Deuteronomy 6. The most important one answered Jesus is this, and this is a quote. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, which was the key statement. This is the key statement of Jews, which was known as the Shema, from the Hebrew word to hear. It was recited every morning and evening by pious Jews. And as one writer says, it was as important to Judaism as, say, the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer have been to Christianity. First and foremost, the primacy of love was to be thought of as a wholehearted love for God. Deuteronomy 6 specified heart, soul and strength. Jesus added the mind as well here. In biblical terms, the heart is the centre of our being, controlling of feelings, emotions and desires. The soul is the spirit or motivation. The mind, of course, the intelligence which directs our opinions and judgments and the strength has to do with the will to put it into practice. There really is no greater representation of love for God, is there, that arises from the depth of our being. And it's easy to read it, I think, without pondering what it might mean for each one here today who profess faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pondered it this week, as I pondered these words this week, I've asked myself this question. If someone asked me, friend, foe, whatever, what was at the centre of my life? What drives me? What determines how I see my life? Would I be game enough to say something like, I'm God's? Lock, stock and barrel. My life is about loving God serving and doing all that God, the God who saved me wants. Even more, if I said that, would I really mean it? Among the many messages that present ourselves in the media today, It's worth pondering the extent to which love for God moves us, motivates us and shapes all we do. Now, although the teacher of the law asked Jesus only one commandment, Jesus adds a second. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You see, a wholehearted love for God cannot be separated from a love for neighbour 
as love for oneself. Jesus quotes again from the Old Testament in Leviticus 19.18, but Jesus is the first person to bring these two commands together and make them inseparable. The reason, I think, is that for the Jews, they restricted the concept of neighbour just to fellow Jews. But Jesus did not. That much is clear from the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, where a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jew, was a neighbour to a Jew who'd been mugged and robbed and left to die. Most of us know only too well how to take care of ourselves or advise others what we need to take care of ourselves. What we find difficult is to treat others in the same way. Human beings have a selfish core which is difficult to overcome in the favour of good of the good of others. But we must not think we can profess a faith and love of God without also being committed to those to love those who are around us, those who he created. And note the teacher of the law knows this. He commends Jesus for his answer and even states in verse thirty three Um, to love him with all your heart, understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that's a big statement. Remember, this discussion takes place in the temple courts, which was at the centre of the worship of God through various sacrifices. So this man understands that relationship with God is what matters more than all the religious rituals one might perform. And yet there's still one more thing he needs to know. It's implicit in Jesus' reply to him in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And question time ended. You see, the teacher of the law understood truly the demands of a holy God, but he needed one thing more. He needed to know the importance of belonging to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as we've said before, is really the main theme throughout the whole of Mark's Gospel. It doesn't, however, refer to what we might expect, a piece of geography, like, say, the United Kingdom, something like that. It refers to the reign of God, the rule of God, and entering the kingdom of God refers to choosing the rule of God for your life. This teacher is not far from the kingdom of God, but he is not chosen, not yet chosen, God's rule for himself. For that involves submitting to the authority of Jesus, as God's Messiah. He must do more than just approve of Jesus' teaching. He must deny himself and follow Jesus. Remember last week we looked at the rich young ruler. He'd obeyed the commandments since he was a boy, but Jesus asked him to give up the one thing that was keeping him from entering the kingdom and following Jesus, his wealth. And he went away sad. 
So today, friends, there are many people who would agree with the teacher of the law. Many people who think that Jesus was a good man. Many who agree with his teaching on all sorts of things, particularly on his teaching about love. Just think about the prominence, the golden rule, do unto others as you want them to do you, is played in our history as the foundation of ethical behaviour and comes directly from here. But belonging to the kingdom and so having the great hope of resurrection and life for eternity requires more than just approval of Jesus' teaching. It requires more than an assessment of Jesus as a good man, even the best man who ever lived. It requires submission of your whole life to him, to his authority as God's son and to the one whose death and resurrection has opened the gates to resurrection life that has prepared, that he has prepared for all who respond in repentance and faith to Jesus. It's a fitting way, I think, to conclude our journey through Mark's Gospel. For the Gospel begins with the words of Jesus in 1.15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe the good news. So we conclude with the implicit call of Jesus to the teacher of the law to enter the kingdom of God. It's good news, friends, because it comes as a gift of God's grace when we throw our lot in with Jesus. Is this what you have done? Have you thrown everything in with Jesus? Thrown your lot into him? Well, if you have, then that will continue to be evident in a wholehearted love for God and neighbour, empowered by his spirit living within us and with all the assurance, brothers and sisters, that there can be nothing more certain than eternal communion with God and with all his people that awaits us. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for who you are. We thank you that when you make promises, they do not end with death, but they are eternal. And so your promises to us of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ are a certain assurance of our living with you forever. We may not understand what that will involve. It will be so incredible. But we do ask that you would help us to always be faithful to Jesus, to love you with our whole heart and to love our neighbours as ourselves and encourage one another with a great assurance of resurrection life to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.